Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, and with me is David Moser. Hey, David, how you doing? I'm doing fine. We're here in Beijing, where it's relatively safe these these few days, just for the the uh, timestamp, you know, uh, uh, purposes. These few days have been the uh, massive floods in Henan Province and Zhengzhou, massive floods in Germany, and also fires in the in the United States. Uh, West Coast. So we're in the midst of uh, the new era of climate change disasters. Yeah. And uh, speaking of disasters, it's also the opening ceremonies of the uh, Tokyo Olympics right. today. That's right. right. So yeah. lots of historic things happening. Well, you know, it's also it's summer. And those of us who want to try to put our heads in the sand and pretend that the world is not, in fact, going to hell, have been doing so by going out on the road and going on vacation and one of the things about living in China, at least since you know since last year, has been that while travel outside of China is quite difficult and travel coming into China is almost impossible, there's a lot of opportunities to travel within the country. And one of the things about living in a country this large is there's a lot of places to go. That's right. Many places I have not yet been. Uh, you've been to a lot more places than I have. You've, you've been re- recently where? Out in, in the... Uh, well, yeah, we're doing. I've been I've been working on some programs out in uh, Gansu mm-hmm. and uh, in Qinghai, and it's some area. It's some areas I've been before with leading like student travel, and I, I think you know you're saying. I think a lot of people are kind of in this position where they've been living in China for a while, and usually when they have some time off, they're you know heading for Thailand or heading for home. But I'm getting I'm hearing from a lot of folks. They're like, well, you know, it's not the best situation, obviously. But at least I have an opportunity to travel around and see this country. And, and I'm not even necessarily talking about expats. I'm also talking about quite a few Beijingers mm-hmm. who are taking advantage of the time and taking advantage of you know, opportunities to, to see their own country. That's true. With the international travel bans, uh, it, it, it's Beijing and uh, you know, the, the interior of China has had a lot of, got quite a travel boom. So it's probably, probably good. China is a very diverse country and a lot of even Chinese, as you say, have not seen you know, even a tenth of it. Working with students before, I would do kind of the, what we call the Silk Road Adventure. It just goes back to like the 2000s. And it was a, a trip that it was like Xi'an, out to um, Lanzhou, and then a quick detour down to the area where Qinghai and Gansu kind of come together. And it's an area, there's a, a town there called, uh, in Chinese, it's called Xiaohe. It's where the Lebrong Monastery is. It's one of the largest and most important uh, Tibetan Buddhist monasteries in the northern part of the Tibetan Plateau. And then we'd head out further west to, to Dunhuang. And then in the earlier days, we'd eventually get to Xinjiang, although the last couple of times, uh, I've done this trip. We kind of stopped at the uh, Gansu, uh, not wanting to really go much further. But it's a, it's a, it's an interesting area, and it's also right now I think one of the areas that's really quite hot for travel. You talk to a lot of folks in Beijing; these are these are hot spots most of the time, but particularly now because I think they appeal to a certain kind of traveler from China. The travel that usually goes to international destinations, they are they like some of the they like some of the same areas that many of the expats do. For many of the same reasons, these are places like Gansu, places like Yunnan, uh, down in Yangshuo, uh, areas like that, that kind of give a, a certain uh, different vibe from the tour, from the cities of the you know coastal China, make the big urban spaces that we're all living in. So what about the new travel realities? Um, you and I can probably trade anecdotes, but we're in this COVID era, era COVID-19 era now. 
what's it like traveling out there with with all the restrictions and all the, you know, the Jiangkang Bao and all that? Well, yeah, I mean, think about this. This for those of you who aren't in China, so the the Chinese government, actually, almost every province and even some cities, has created their own apps that, in theory, tra- are able to track your movements and track your testing history and your vaccination history and they give you a green code that says yes this person is a reasonable expectation this person is covid free or at least hasn't traveled to any area now i mean how well they work i don't know i mean you have apps being developed by all these different places and and i'm sure there's a certain chavador that goes into them there one of the challenges is that while there is a there is one app that's kind of nationally used most of the most of the the different cities and provinces prefer to see their own app on your phone, and that works okay if you're in a place like Beijing or Shanghai or a, a area where you can use your passport to log in. But a lot of the places, once you get out west, you get to the airport, like okay, scan the code, scan the code, fill in your information, like okay, I don't have a Shenzhen Zhang number. I'm like, what? What do you mean I have a Shenzhen Zhang number? I'm like, I I don't have a Shenzhen Zhang. I'm like, why not? I'm like, I'm a foreigner. <laughs> My country doesn't have Shenzhen Zhang, and I certainly don't have one from your country, so what do I do? And then they get directed to the line that says, the old, it says old people, uh, no phone, and dumb phone. <laughs> right. And uh, I go through that line, and I, I, I feel They do it by hand, right? Yeah. yeah I, I've had hand. that several times traveling. It. That's, this is a problem, because uh, you know, the, the number of expats, the number of foreigners in the country have increased, obviously, since the 90s and, and recently, but... They still haven't quite caught up to the reality of foreigners using these things and traveling throughout China. So, yes, I've encountered this problem several times. I've also encountered uh, a problem that that several of my friends have also come up with, which is, you know, China has a one-time you know ID card for life, and they have a the same number basically. It's like it's like in the U.S. your social security number, the same number for life. We, however, in the, in the United States, when we change passports, we have a new number, and so I've been using my old passport for the last. Year, year since I came back, and now I, I just got a new passport. It expired, and I have a new passport. There is no way for me to change my number, you know, on the app directly because as soon as I change the number, I'm no longer connected to my name and and, and an original number. No longer connected on the system, and I have to register as a new user, which means I lose all of my old data about the information about my my testing my, my uh, what do you call it? The, the nucleic test and my and my uh, vaccinations which I've done a complete set of those all that information's gone so I, if I put in the new passport uh, number then suddenly you know I don't come out as someone who's been vaccinated and it's, I could run into run into problems if they're trying to you know see what my medical record is if I'm using the old passport eventually if I travel I'm going to run into a problem which is wait a minute this is not the same passport that you're using here to to go through customs or whatever. So I, I've actually gone to several different uh, hospitals. I've gone to this place called United Family, Beijing United Family. I've actually called these hotline numbers to help citizens, foreign citizens to, you know, nobody can figure out how to do this. <laughs> I've even gone to the police station and they say, well, we're not really sure how to do this. I'm sure there is an answer, but I mean, this this sort of thing, you know, travelers, we are still a little bit out of the loop. We're a little bit not uh, 
part of the system. And uh, it, it's, I, I recently went to Inner Mongolia, which we can talk about it, had the same problem exactly. When I got there, none of my, uh, my uh, QR code information would work. It was hard for me to download and, and register on, on the Inner Mongolian one. And so basically the same thing. I went through a special line and some people looked at my materials and said, I go on, go ahead and go on in. So I was spending all the time there without any, without being on the system as being, as having gotten, gone outside of Beijing. And so much of this too is predicated on having WeChat. Yes. And I mean, it's not an issue right now because almost everyone who lives in, in China, who even foreigners has a WeChat account. But when, if the China decides to reopen their borders to international travelers. And again, this is not necessarily something that's going to happen in the immediate future. But at this point now, it's not even just the health code apps. It's to get into a museum, mm -hmm. to go to, to go almost anywhere requires scanning a code through WeChat, you know, register reservations, all payment systems are done through WeChat. And I, I was talking with someone yesterday who's also in the travel business and they were saying they, they, they've been doing a project of going around to every museum in Beijing, which is a really cool project, but they're doing it purposely doing it without using their WeChat as a way of kind of testing the system for international travelers. It's, it's shocking like how many places where they're like, oh, foreign, foreigners don't use WeChat. Well, how do they communicate? And, and the idea, and, and, and granted, this, I don't know if this is going to be, I don't think it's a priority for most places, even most local governments, because at the end of the day, even if, even if and when the borders open up, you know, even before COVID, you, you go to major tourist hotspots in China, and I mean big places, you know, Forbidden City, Dunhuang, the grottos out in Gansu, or, you know, the, the Panda Breeding Center, um, you know, out in, Chung, out in Sichuan. 99, I don't know, the I, I should probably look up these numbers, and I'm not, so I'm just going to pull them out of my ass, but I don't think I'm that far wrong. 95 out of every 100, and that's probably being generous of uh, visitors are from China. And so if you're, if you're one of these, if you're a, a local government, if you're a tourist site, even if you're a hotel, why spend all the money to like create a system that 5% of people maybe are ever gonna use probably less than that? And, and frankly, it's people that you don't really want anyway, mm -hmm. especially now because one of the things that's happening is when a lot of Chinese tour groups get into a hotel and they see a foreigner in the lobby, a lot of them start to panic. And so from the perspective of, you know, and we're seeing this even in so-called global Beijing, you know, bars and, and there are a few bars and places that have turned people away, you know, not necessarily because, well, the, the, the reason is like, well, you know, we don't want you here because the other customers don't want you here and we want those other customers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that this brings up a topic, you know, that we could talk about a little bit. We've, we haven't yet sort of traded anecdotes about this, but what do you feel traveling these, these last few years? It used to be that, that, you know, foreign travelers were still relatively rare and most often, the result of of being being this sort of uh, odd creature there was was actually you know increased attention, increased uh, uh, help, travelers aid, people people with good English very willing to come up and help you. Uh, hotels, even though they were probably inconvenienced, you know, going way out of their way. Uh, have do you still see that now, or is it we're so routine that that, that they just kind of slough us off? Well, I, you know, I think it's kind of gone through this like cycle where. You know, when when you first got here, and even when I first got here, 
there was still the novelty of it. And I also think a lot of people really cared about how the rest of the world saw China. Like, like when they saw, there's a lot of complex reasons for this, not all of them particularly good, but when people saw a foreign face, you know, there was an idea like we need to impress this person in some way, or at least this person needs to like, we want to have this person have a good time in our city and have a good impression of us. And I, I thought, you know, so people would go out of their way and they'd be very helpful. And, and that's, that, that was awesome. Not everybody, but a lot of people. I think there got to be a point right about, you know, right after the Olympics, right around 2010, 2011, where we kind of reached like peak Laowai. And I, I think it wasn't that people were less helpful. I just think the novelty had worn off. You know, I mean, it's still, you still hear stories like, oh, I went to this village in Heilongjiang and like it was, I was like the first foreign friend I ever saw and we had parties all night, that kind of, I mean, that yeah. still happened. Sure. But it was not going to happen at the Forbidden City and it was probably not even going to happen at the Panda Breeding Center. So at that point, I think it got a little bit less, uh, you know, it became a little bit more normalized. I think what changed though, I think two things. One was later on, obviously COVID changed everything in some pretty dramatic ways. But I think another part of it too was that honestly, people, not everybody, I don't want to generalize, but you know, a lot of people don't care that much about what the rest of the world thinks of China anymore. In the sense like they're like, I I don't, you know, why? And again, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. The idea that I don't, why why am I going out of my way to impress you about my country? You got to take it or leave it. Yeah, I have not, I've not encountered that too much. Uh, I think part of it is, I think if you do speak Chinese, you tend to be, you know, uh, treated almost just like anyone anyone else. But they, 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 and, and a foreigner speaking good Chinese is not rare at all these days. So, so as long as you make, don't make their job harder, they're very happy to, to do the routine help. Um, what the problem comes when you have a foreigner who's never been here, doesn't understand the rules and the way the game is played and can't speak Chinese, and then they're a headache, and then you get some some resentment and some anger at saying, you know, why am I going out of, out of my way to help you? Um, you know, the, the first time I ever encountered anything like this, a sort of a animosity towards foreigners, was not until the, the late 1990s. I was traveling in the 80s and the early 90s. Sometimes, uh, and back then it was pretty risky or at least pretty adventuresome to travel without a, being part of a, tra- a travel tour or having a tour guide or being under the auspices of your university because uh, back then it was a nightmare to arrange trains or anything, you, you know, because everything was on paper. You needed to have good Chinese to do it, to do anything. Nowadays, I have to say, it's, it's really night and day. The Chinese infrastructure and, and the digital uh, network is so advanced now that it's, it's just effortless to do things. Getting online, it's, it's as easy or easier than getting online at you know, Expedia.com you know, and getting a, a, an airplane and a hotel and a taxi and everything. It's, it's just as easy. And very often, this, I use the Chinese interfaces, but I know that you can get English versions of all these things or get an English uh, interface. And, and so, you know, there's night and day differences. But they're, they're now, the, now the problem is the things that ordinary Chinese do. Travel is just hard because of so many people. The, the just sheer amount of people traveling now is, is enormous. But through the most of the 80s and 90s, I was always treated very, very nicely by everyone I, we met. It wasn't until uh, the, the late 90s when, you remember, there was a wave of anti-Americanism or anti-foreignism. There was a, a series of books that started out with a, a book called Zhongguo Ke Shuo Bu, 
China can say no. And then there was like a, a whole series of like ripoff, you know, books of, of, with similar titles. There was a whole series of the, the Zhongguo Bugaoxing series, the China is Unhappy series. And then they had another Zhongguo Bugaoxing. Then the next book was Zhongguo Weishima Bugaoxing. And then the third book was like Zhongguo Pingshima Bugaoxing. So there was all these, and it was, they were like these anti-foreign screeds. And there was, you know, a little bit of resentment towards uh, the foreigners constant. Because by then, you know, you were beginning to get uh, foreign media accounts of China that were available within China. So I made a trip with a Beida professor and a, and a, Japan, a couple of Japanese students to uh to Lingqing, Shandong province, which is the birthplace of uh, Shandong Kuai Shu, which is a kind of a folk art speaking uh, form. You know, we were, were used to traveling with this professor, and usually he took care of everything, and we didn't really have to do very much. But this was the first time that we got a knock on the door uh, once we had settled in for this conference, and the police summoned us to the lobby, and they wanted to see our passports and our identification and everything. It so, just so happens that I had not brought my passport with me, because usually... The, this professor was in charge of everything, and I guess he just had used his own passport to register us. The three of us, the two Japanese students and me, were just absolutely harassed and terrorized by these cops who clearly were trying to give us a hard time. I mean, the, and the professor was doing his best to, to sort of um, appease them and flatter them and saying, oh, it's all my fault, you know, here I'll write a, a self-criticism, <laughs> you know, and everything. But what, what struck me was that the two Japanese students, he was pretty harsh with them, but he said, you, Mr. Moa, you're, you're, in the, uh, strict, you're in violations of the code, legal code of the People's Republic of China. You didn't bring your passport. These two Japanese people will find them 500 kwai. For you, you there's a fine of $5,000, and you have to spend two days in jail here. And this was this out, outlandish, and the speaking professor, university professor was just you know, white with terror that this was happening. And I remember, never remember what the cop said to me. He said, this is according to our Chinese laws. You're from America, right? You're from a Fajir Guajia, right? A, a, a rule of law country, right? So surely you must understand that our, we have our rules here and you have to abide by our rules. And, and, and this, this sort of snark and, and animosity and, and anger and it was something that I'd never experienced before by, by anyone traveling. Um, I've never experienced anything like that since then, but I know that it, it's there. <laughs> I mean, there are some, there are some angry... Get ready. <laughs> yeah. Be, yeah, because uh, it, it's happening a lot more. A lot more. The last couple of times I've been out to, uh, again, to like Gansu and out west... And that, I mean, for obvious reasons, you go to areas that are, you know, Tibetan cultural areas and uh, part of it, you know, you're talking, you're right when you say that it's, it's much easier to travel in terms of infrastructure and logistics and setting things up. But one of the things I'm finding is it, it even for those foreigners who've lived in China a long time, going with a group helps because the local police are so on edge right now about foreigners. You know, you think about the the steady fire hose. We talked about this last year, but the steady fire hose of bullshit that is, you know, Chinese state media about the dangers of the foreign presence. And then you realize that internally, that the trainings and the the briefings for the security apparatus, it's 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 up like nine levels. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening is, you know, foreigners show up in Rando Village, and the first instinct from most of the police and the officials there, again, they don't talk to each other because all these different security apparatus, they don't, they're all overlapping and, and competing with each other. But in any case, 
none of them want a foreigner there. If for no other reason, then it's just going to, if something happens, it's on, it's going to be their ass. And so what I found is with groups, if you show up, especially if you have a local guide, this is, it's sad, but like they, they're like, okay, well, we've got a barbarian handler. And the other part of it too, is they make it very clear to these local guides that if, if any one of these uh, foreigners uh, you know, strays far. You know, strays off the uh, strays out of bounds. It, it's going to be your responsibility. And when a solo foreigner shows up, that gets a little bit weird because they they, they there's not you know they they don't know what to do with it or do with the foreigner. So you know, just recently we were out in uh, in Gansu and and uh, it was pretty common. And I think this is pretty common most places in, in China these days. Once you get out of the big cities, you know, we'd show up in a hotel. And, uh, you know, a few, uh, either 20 minutes later or 10 minutes later, uh, there'd be, you know, the local representatives from the local police or the public security bureau there taking our pictures and checking our passports. And, uh, at one hotel we showed up and they were actually just, they were waiting there for us, uh, taking our picture as we walked in and, you know, they're, they're pretty upfront with what they're doing. I'm like, Hey, how you doing? Like, you guys work for the government? Yep. We work for the government. All right. Smile for the camera. And this is, this is a kind of a new reality. I think there's some, again, part of it may be the area, obviously areas that have a high concentration of ethnic nationalities are going to have a, a much more robust police presence. And then also we found out later while we we're out in Western Gansu, they had just announced that they had put like a hundred new missile silos in that area. Oh, I saw well. the news on that. Yeah. They're very interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe that was another reason. Pretty why sensitive areas. Yeah, suddenly, people, yeah. Are, people are all on edge. I mean, it is the new reality of traveling in China where it's easier to get around, but you're, you're obviously much more easily tracked and uh well that's for sure back then you know they didn't there weren't all these digital there, there weren't there were not the, the the cctv cameras everywhere that you see now right so yeah i mean and you know actually this i can understand the consternation of the police officials and the local people because you're right i mean the, a, a, something happens to a foreigner then it's a big deal and it's their ass it's, it's that's true so I, one thing i've noticed because i was just recently in inner mongolia believe it or not playing a jazz gig which is all that's already a you know, 20 years ago, that would have sounded like a joke. What? You play jazz in Inner Mongolia? How is that possible? But in fact, you know, uh, Hohat, the city there, you know, which I had not been to, in fact, in 25 years, I think, was a totally different city. In fact, I wouldn't have even recognized it as being Inner Mongolia. I mean, it was just an amazing. Oh, I had actually been to um, Ordos, the famous ghost city, back when it was a ghost city. Wow. Um, this was in 2004, I believe, and there was a there was a I don't know if people know about that, but that was kind of interesting. Just as this is a sidelight here, but uh, Ordos was this ghost city where you know there had been massive investment there, and you know millions of dollars, and they had built the infrastructure first and expected then the influx of buyers, of property buyers, to come in there, and it didn't really happen right away. They they had misjudged the market. Has it ever happened? I mean, it, it eventually did fill in. It filled bit, in around yeah. by the by the year 2017 or so. Something like 80% of the apartments were bought or filled. But back then, it was an eerie uh, kind of experience because they had... We went... I went again with a music group 
in fact, that was playing for an event that was part of a racetrack there. So they had they had a huge modern racetrack there with the with these race cars, and there was an influx of you know people, the foreigners and Chinese, doing this this racing. So a huge amount of money and a lot of uh, a lot of publicity for it. And then, but the only people there literally were the people that were there for the racetrack event, staying in some of the hotels. But you walked around that city, you know, there were there were beautiful libraries, there were civic centers, there were there were expansive roads with you know mile after mile of great you know wonderful high rise apartment buildings, uh, incredible infrastructure, and beautiful hotels and everything empty eerie on the street it's virtually no one the hotel we were staying in you know at the evening we were sort of hungry said and we went downstairs and said you know where's the nearest rec- restaurant and uh, she said oh that way go out the door and turn right and just keep walking Nibia. right Nibia. and so we go we we exited and started walking and after 10 minutes 15 minutes 20 minutes we went wait a minute we're not finding any restaurant here we walked back and we said, we, she must have told us wrong. You know, we said, we walked 20 minutes and there's no restaurant. She said, oh, no, of course, you've got to walk, walk about 45 minutes to get to this restaurant, which it would be, it would be nice if she had told us this, right? But that was, that was uh, Ordos. It's now gone back to normal, but that was the kind of weird travel experience that you would have back then when, when China had not yet, you know, some inequities and some, some uh, sort of uneven levels of modernization, right? But what I was going to say in Inner Mongolia, uh, you know, the city is quite modern now, as as a lot of second and third tier cities now are actually quite wonderful to live in. And and are, I would sort of, if my wife and I sort of joke, if we're going to retire. We don't want to retire in Beijing. We'll go we'll go to Tianjin or we'll go to Dalian or some second tier city where there's lots of great new infrastructure, nice mass transit, but not so many people and better, much much better living conditions. Anyway, but here I was in Inner Mongolia, and I was rem- I was remembering the last time I went, and very often traveling throughout China, there was a problem that not everyone spoke English. I mean, not every every even hotels they didn't have very good English speakers, but it was very hard to communicate with the locals in Putonghua, in the in Mandarin, in the in the, nor- in the national language, because in fact back then they still had not, and still to this day, the Ministry of Culture says there's something like three or four hundred million people who still cannot speak adequate Putonghua. They can understand it when they hear it on the radio or TV. But back then in the 90s, you would very often go out into the countryside or even one of these other cities to go to even even places like Guangdong, right? And you would ask directions on the street or try to converse, and, and it was it was quite a struggle to, to to communicate with the locals because they didn't speak English, and they didn't speak the kind of Mandarin. <laughs> the, the, and I'm not good at hearing listening to to dialects. I get lost qu- qu- quite quickly. So it was interesting for me to go to Inner Mongolia because the people there, especially the older people, and, and we hung out at some restaurants. You know, at, there was some great food. I mean, amazing food, but usually populated by older people. The younger people still like to go to McDonald's and do just like young people everywhere in China. But the the, the traditional restaurants you could get the, the sort of local food had a lot of older people. And they would talk to you, but it was in a kind of a hybrid of Mongolian and Putonghua, almost a pigeon, where there was, you know, the sentence structure would be would be Mongolian, but they would throw in Mandarin words or vice versa. And uh, I spent 15 or 20 minutes talking with an old chap who was very quite nice. And I don't think I understood 5% of what he was saying. I just understood individual words. But, I mean, this is another way in which China has changed. 
you know, you can you can speak the 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 goal of making China sort of unified through Putonghua has actually succeeded quite well. And traveling, you know, even used to go to a conference, and even at the conference, people would get up who were professors at, at, at famous universities, and you could hardly understand what they're saying because they had such a strong regional accent, or maybe they were just speaking Shandong dialect without even realizing it. I mean, not, that wasn't very common, but it would it would happen. That's rare. That's rare now. You go to any place in China and you can find people who speak very standard Mandarin, even even Guangdong. We, we had a similar experience. We were camping out on the grasslands in uh, or on the Qinghai-Gansu border, and the people we were staying with, they were ethnically uh, Mongolian. Because that area of Qinghai has always had a very, very strong Mongolian cultural influence. And, you know, it's... Uh, the, it's interesting you know, when you get that kind of frontier area where you have cultures coming together. There's a lot of languages going around. You know, you've got Mongolians who speak Tibetans. You've got everyone kind of speaks. and by Tibet and even Tibetan has many many different regional dialects. Right in this right? case, yeah. sort of the northern the northern like you know Amdo version of uh, Amdo dialect of Tibetan. What was what I have found, and it was true this last trip as well, is that. The, the the people with whom I'm most able to communicate in Putonghua are usually under the age of 10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yeah. the, it's mm-hmm. the kids who go to school. Right, right. And, you know, I, I've noticed this a couple of times over the years when I'm staying in, like, re- more remote villages or remote areas. You know, as, you, as you just mentioned, you know, all the older folks, their Mandarin, you know, is a, a language that has been kind of foisted on them over in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. But you get their, their grandkids... And or their kids or grandkids, and you know they've they've been part of the school system, and of course now there's even a greater emphasis on Mandarin education in these areas, and so what was interesting was you'd see you know a little bit like um, you know second generation immigrant family uh, second generation immigrant children in like North America, you have these kids running around this this camp and they're they're playing with each other. And, and they're playing with each other in what is predominantly Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And then their parents are talking to them in you know, the local language. Right. And it was an interesting dynamic to watch unfold. Right. It, that's happening all over China. It's, and it's certainly happening in the, not the Han dialect areas so much. They're, they're, you know, the schooling is all in Putonghua, and there's no controversy about that. But in, in Mongolia and Xinjiang and Tibet, where you do have a non, these, these minority languages, the non-Han dialects, and uh, as they increase, you know, uh, they make Putonghua Mandarin the the lesson, the the language of instruction in the schools. Then, yeah, the next generation they lose the ability to speak uh, their local language. They understand it, but they quit speaking it. And it's not just the schools; it's it's the internet, and it's it's media. The kids live all day long in Mandarin media, and uh, you know, it is a crisis, and and it's a it's a sort of a it's a paradox, and, and the, the parents and the older people have mixed feelings about it because, one, they think it's a tragedy if the students, if the, if the young kids lose contact with the, with the local culture and language because those two are so interlaced. But on the other hand, they do want their kids to be able to get good jobs and to go out and, and, and you know, make their way in the world. And, of course, good standard Mandarin is, is essential for that. So they want their kids to, to be fluent, but then on the other hand, they don't really want them to, to have this cultural distance between them and the older people but there's you know there's nothing you can do about it the the trend now is to increase the amount of mandarin instruction 
And I would say, you know, the next the next generation after this, which would be, I guess, generations are now every five years instead of every 15 or 20 years. But I wouldn't say, you know, within the next decade, for most of those areas, you're going to have lots of the most of the adults speaking standard Mandarin. And they might understand the local Mongolian or the, the, the dialect of Tibetan or whatever, but they're not going to be speaking it fluently. I mean, this goes back to a question that you addressed in, in your book, Billion Voices, and we talked about last year in our podcast on uh, Mandarin Mayhem, right. but the question of, you know, what is the purpose of Mandarin? Is right. it to create a, a language that people can communicate in when they speak to each other across, you know, provincial or cultural lines, or is it meant to replace all the other dialects? And it seems to be definitely the, the latter. Right. Right. So anyway, these are all, we'll, we'll see what happens. These are all the complexities. But the, all these things and the technology has, has changed the, what it feels like to, to travel here. I, I would say overall, uh, it's a win-win situation because, you know, part of, you know, Chinese's, uh, Chinese economy is the tourist in, industry. And that's why COVID-19 has been such a disaster. They're gonna, they're, they are and will be increasingly sort of anxious to get that back. And these acts, these aspects that we're talking about, like the the the, uh, the COVID nineteen, the QR codes, and the the vaccination passport issues, and the, these are all going to be the new reality of traveling in China, uh, especially especially in a place like China. I'm not sure what the U.S. is going to be like in the next few years, but China will be very willing. The government would be very very willing to adapt provincial passport, tra- you know, vaccination passports as well as international vaccination passports, as well as other kinds of controls. They have no hesitation to do that. So I think this is just a new normal we're facing, right? You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not completely convinced that everybody is eager to get the international travelers back into China. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there are people who, who do. Well, well, the travel agencies and the airlines are certainly, I mean, they've the, had to they, take they a might, huge hit. They might yeah. be, but... We think if you take a look at how, I mean, the hotels, the air, the domestic airlines in China, this is not leaving out, I mean, you know, internet, the Chinese are traveling abroad, but like the, the tourist economy in China is driven by domestic Chinese travelers. Right. And the international travel accounts for a really small part of that. Yes, a small, but I, I think still an important one. I think you're right about the the internet, the travel within China domestically at these other areas. But if you're talking about the major cities, Shanghai and Beijing, I think the the foreign travel aspect is still pretty a huge part of the tourist industry. But no, I think I think you're you're probably right. China's boosting its domestic. Uh, economy. That's one of the goals, you know, uh, in, in the new China. As the decoupling happens and, and other kinds of sort of moving away from from a sort of incorporating, you know, f- foreigners into the economy, they're going to make you know internal domestic travel easier, and it's going to become more and more profitable. And the Chinese now are able to have the wherewithal to do it. And as China grows and changes quickly foreign domestic travel is more interesting and more varied and more and more uh, tourist friendly and especially for the middle and upper class that you know they want to travel but they also want their amenities they want the nice hotel and the and all this sort of stuff and you can you know we can you're increasingly you can go to any of these outlying areas including places like Xinjiang and get very get first class you know five star hotel service every, everywhere i think actually i think that's one of the benefits from uh this recent upsurge in domestic travel and the fact that a lot of the upwardly mobile, you know, urban elite aren't able to travel abroad, which is there was this sort of this phase. So 
in like the 2000s, you had all these like international hotels, the big brands like, you know, Hyatt, Rich Carlton, right. all these big brands come in. And then they started popping up in like second and third tier cities. So you'd have like, you know, a, a Rich Carlton or something in, you know, an inland city and even some pretty big resort brands. And then the international travel to China kind of it receded a little bit in the early 2010s. China was no longer as hot. It wasn't as, as big a travel destination. And at the same time, uh, many of the you know urban elite weren't traveling in China. They were discovering the joys of Paris and right. they're going down to you know Thailand. And so what ended up happening, uh, you know, in the last in the middle of the two like the last decade was you ended up with a lot of these kind of zombie hotels that, you know, what I mean is like on the outside, it said, you know, Hilton or Holiday Inn or Kempinski or one of these brands, right? And then on the inside, it wasn't. Like it had been taken, like the international management had left. It wasn't international visitors. It was purely now mostly domestic travelers and not domestic travelers who had traveled abroad. And so inevitably... The, the standards of service and quality declined. There's no other way to put it. And so you, and it, we call, and I, I call them zombie hotels because it looks on the outside, it looks like it should be a living entity embodying like, you know, international standards and you get inside, it's, it's brain dead. But one of the things I think has happened in the last year or so is that as more of this urban elite has been traveling, they have pretty high standards and they've been forcing many of these hotels to up their game. And even more importantly, they are also becoming a, a market, a, a customer base for entrepreneurs who want to experiment with things like, uh, you know, ecologically friendly hotels or, you know, ecotourism or boutique hotels or the kind of kind of funky um, lodging options and funky travel opportunities and experiences that have been a, a big part of many other parts of the world. They weren't necessarily as big a thing here. They're becoming much more so. I, I've noticed this particularly like this summer. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot of uh, demand, tourist demand, for for not the usual sort of luxury uh, shopping mall kind of experience. They actually want to go to a, a more traditional sort of architecture, or, or you know, have the feeling of being you know in the in the real China or the past China. So I mean, yeah, there's there's definitely the, the tourist, and that's normal. The tourist industry is becoming diverse. And the kind of clientele is is becoming diversified. So you know that's that's all great. But we we as foreigners, you know, can benefit from that because, as you say, we have most foreigners are, have the wherewithal to take advantage of those those opportunities, and then they are. And I think I think the you know however many foreigners end up <laughs> expats end up in China in the long run, there that there's there's still going to be a market for foreigners traveling and for de- definitely. David, I'm going to ask you two quick questions. Get your hot take on hot takes on this. The first one is, all right, we're going to play a little game here. When do you think they're going to when do you think China will will effectively reopen the borders to international travel? And I don't necessarily mean by officially opening the borders but making it super impossible to actually get in. I mean, when do you really when when can we expect like a group of students, for example, from the US to do their three-week summer excursion in uh in china what, what what's your what's if you're gonna buy if you're, if you're a betting man what's what what do you think that's gonna happen 
Well, it's not just my opinion, because I've asked this question of a lot of different people. For me, from, from my own uh, friends and acquaintances, the, the consensus is sort of probably not till the end of next year, and, and probably more like the year after that. The reason being we have, and we've talked about this on a previous podcast, the upcoming uh, Olympics, right, the Winter Olympics, and then also the, the big party meeting in, in the fall, right? I think that, that no matter what COVID looks like at that point, that they're going to wait until after those two important events to go ahead and open up completely. I think for academic issues, uh, there still is a whole lot of universities with a lot of foreign students in the middle of a degree program that haven't been able to come back and, and they don't really want to do it on Zoom. It may be even po- impossible to do do that. Um, I, they, I know from personal experience that they are starting to make allowances for those students. The Chinese students who were supposed to be studying in the U.S. basically are, can go there now. And so most of those stopgap sort of temporary programs that had given them the chance to take a semester of, of, of American education here in China, those have closed down or are closing down. So that that outflow of students to the U.S. is is already happening. The the inflow of foreign students into China or return of the foreign students hasn't happened yet and won't happen until until next year. That's my opinion. So the the tourist industry for sure is not going to come back anything like it was until. 2023. Yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with with that. I, I would have said exactly the same thing. I've been what people have asked me, um, both professionally and just kind of personally, when is the, the most likely time when when travel will return to some kind of normalcy uh, between China and the rest of the world? I, I've been telling people whether it's a you know a, a faculty member who's considering bringing students over here or you know my mom. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're really thinking like end of 2022, 2023. All right. Well, our second question, since we're going to be stuck here for a little while, where's one place in China that you haven't gone that you, it's on your list? Like, you know, if we're going to have to travel inside China, what's one place that you're like, you know, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to check that box, you know, while, uh, while I can. Well, that's pretty easy, but it's not a very interesting answer. I've never been to Tibet. So that is really that's that's long been a sort of a uh, you know a dream of mine to go there and and be able to actually spend some time there. I don't want to just go there for a, a weekend. To be a little bit honest, <laughs> frank about it, I'm a little bit afraid because of the altitude issue. And at my age, it may take me that may be that might be a difficult transition. Uh, so I've got to plan this trip very carefully and figure out the best way to do it. But yeah, that's that's one place that before I die, I want to go to Tibet. Uh, but I've got to hurry up before it no longer looks like, like Tibet. <laughs> I think we still have a decade or more, but I mean, I, it's, it's changing also very rapidly. Yeah, please stand by. <laughs> I, I think for me, there's just two places. Um, one, is, one is kind of China, and, and one is, is definitely China. Uh, one place I've never been is Macau. Oh, interesting. And I mean, it, it's not just, you know, the love of a good sports book, but also... Uh, there's a, I do a lot of research in, in church history and, uh, and some of the early you know, uh, examples of a European colonialism. Yeah. And, and Macau is obviously a, an important place for that. And, and so I w- I've always wanted to go there. I've been to Hong Kong, never got across to Macau. Mm-hmm. The other place, that, the other province, and I think if I'm thinking, it may be the only province in China I haven't been to yet is uh, Fujian. Ah. And I, I've, I, I, I'm not sure why I keep missing Fujian, but um, definitely I, I hear great things about it. 
So if there's one place that I, I want to check off my list, you know, before, you know, in the next year or so before we, I can resume, you know, traveling to other parts of the world. Yeah, I think maybe Fujian would be a good place to, to try out. Sounds good. You should. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, fellow travelers, uh, thank you for joining us on, on this uh, journey through China in the age of COVID. Thank you, David. Thank you. Yeah, I have a couple of quick recommendations, if it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we have had plans for a long time to get our friend uh, Marquitas Presswood on the show to talk about his project um, of jazz in China, the history of jazz in China, a documentary and a, and a document thesis that he's been working on. And the good news is he's finally finished that that the documentary is finished and uh, I've had a look at it and it is amazing. It's wonderful. It's an, a very interesting, absorbing documentary about jazz in China in the 1930s and then up to the present time. Aren't you in the documentary? Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, I am in the documentary talking about uh, jazz after, in, in, after the 1980s post-reform and opening up jazz, but also our good friend Andy Field, we're also going to get on the podcast, and Andrew Jones, who it might be good to get on someday, are also the stars of this documentary because they cover uh, in exquisite detail the the, the very fascinating story of jazz and, and ballroom dancing um, in, in Shanghai in the 1930s, 1920s and 30s. Uh, so the, the, the documentary is out. It's on Vimeo. Uh, we'll put a link uh, in the, at the end of the podcast, and you should definitely check it out. It's really worth seeing. It's it's beautifully done. I don't know where he gets some of the early footage of some of the early uh, African American entertainers in Shanghai, but the whole story of jazz in in Shanghai and and uh, in the '30s is is a, a very interesting and and sort of little known piece of Chinese history, but it's, it's being covered now, and I, th I say that's the definitive documentary right now on it. The other thing I'd like to recommend is a book that, that uh, Marquitas is also a part of, and, and so am I. It's called China Tripping, Encountering the Everyday in the People's Republic. And it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's, it's mostly uh, just brief stories, anecdotes, and telling incidents of various China hands from the night from the Cultural Revolution to Reform and Opening Up till now. And it's edited by Perry Link, Jeremy Murray, and Paul Pickowitz, all famous names. And it, and it includes entries or contributions by people like Donald Clark, Vera Schwartz, Melinda Leo, uh, Jeff Wasserstrom, who we've had on the podcast, Perry Link, Paul Pickowitz, me, yours truly, and, and also Mar Marquitas that has a very interesting chapter uh, about you know uh, his experience in China. So that's out there in Kindle and all the and you know I would check it out if you're interested in the sorts of uh, these these events or these anecdotes that are included are meant to be sort of aha moments where these China hands uh, something interesting or sort of life changing happened to them where they suddenly the scales fell from their eyes and they saw something about China for the first time that made them understand the the country in a deep deeper level. So that's the the, the point of this particular book. So. Those two are, are my recommendations. Check them out. And these are all people that we are going to have on the podcast in, in, in the near future, I hope. Yeah, that actually, that, there's a bunch of people there I would love to talk yeah. to. Melinda Leo would be a, nice, would be a great guest. Yeah, She'd be an excellent guest. I'd love to, to talk to She's had such a great experience as a journalist covering China for a, quite a long time and, and being a witness to some of the major events. So she'd be a, 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 just a, a wonderful perspective on Yeah, on and China's to our history. listeners, if you have anyone that you are sort of interested that you followed and, and that might have 
something historically interesting to say, we'd be glad to have him on the podcast and welcome your suggestions. I have a, a, a faux recommendation. Okay, a faux recommendation. Mm-hmm. Okay, you were talking about jazz mm-hmm. in Inner Mongolia mm-hmm. at Hohat, <laughs> and that seems like kind of like that doesn't really go together. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It seems like a non sequitur, right? But you're forgetting the great lost jazz record, Louis Which Armstrong's is? Hohat Fives and Sevens. Oh. And on that note, on that note, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you again at Barbarians at the Gate. (laughs) 